afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We have finally arrived at Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 20. So well done, and thanks for joining us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight we are overjoyed for an opportunity to join together and open your word. Father, on this important topic, again, we need guidance from heaven. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to open up, to convict, and to illumine our minds. And I thank you that you've already heard and answered this prayer according to your best will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I'm going to uh, share with you from the top of page two. The lesson guides are now on YouTube and can be downloaded under the description bar. So thanks for joining us tonight for PS20. One of the most striking truths to come out of our study of the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar's transformation. The regeneration of this mighty heathen king shows that the God of heaven is able and delighted to win difficult people to Jesus Christ. And I think that sometimes that covers us all. Now, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar fought hard against God but he finally acknowledged his leading and it took a revelation about the future in Daniel 2 and then in Daniel 3, a startling discovery of the Son of God in the fiery furnace. And then finally, in Daniel 4, there was insanity before King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the God of heaven as his Lord. Now, you may remember back 14 lessons ago to lesson six where we examine the story of Nebuchadnezzar's transformation as recorded in Daniel chapter four. So let's review it briefly. But before we go to question one, I'd like to recap on the screen. So please give the attention to the screen. In Daniel 4, 28 to 33, it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honour of my majesty? Friends, um, Daniel had warned the king that he needed to break off his iniquities and replace them with righteousness, that he needed to be kind and treat the poor generously. And so the king has now strayed into the territory of boasting because this king was not only the king of Babylon, he was a God king and he was worshipped as a God. And instead of giving the glory to the God of heaven, he gives the glory to himself as one of those gods in the pantheon up there with Bel, Marduk and Nebo. 
The story continues in Daniel 4. While the word was still in the king's mouth, is not this great Babylon that I have built? A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times or seven years shall pass over you. You may remember that we discussed, is there a medical condition for what we're reading here as Nebuchadnezzar's mental illness? We talked about lycanthropy, the wolf man and a werewolf. It's a kind of madness in which the patient believes himself to be a wolf and acts accordingly from the Greek lykos and the word anthropos man joined together. In Daniel 4.33, until you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses, seven years or seven times were to pass over the king. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Well, I think some of us can relate to that. It sounds like a pretty long lockdown of seven years. Friends, tonight you're joining us for lesson number 20. It's what if Nebuchadnezzar were converted today? What are the ramifications of him being converted today? And what are the questions that he would be asking? Let's go to our theme questions. Number one, what is biblical baptism? Two, why don't we baptize babies? Three, is it really necessary to be baptized to be saved? And number four, what are new Christians to be baptized into? These are all very, very important questions. Our first heading is Nebuchadnezzar's transformation. Would you join me in question one? Thanks for joining us tonight. What was the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did when his understanding returned? We go back to Daniel chapter four. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is for, from generation to generation. So what's the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did when his understanding returned? He said, I didn't bless the gods of Babylon. I blessed the most high, the most high God of Daniel, the most high God of Israel. And I praised and honored him. That's what he did at the end of the time. What change occurred in Nebuchadnezzar's thinking after his regeneration? We need to ask the question, who's the actual author of Daniel 4? It's been suggested that Nebuchadnezzar is the author, especially as he claims that title in Daniel 4 verse 1. Notice in verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able 
to put down. So the change that occurred in Nebuchadnezzar's thinking after his regeneration is he gives all praise and honour and he extols and promotes the King of Heaven, the God of Daniel. Before Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the God of Heaven, he praised and glorified himself only. But his encounter with Daniel's God brings about a remarkable change. Nebuchadnezzar is a new person. The old self-centered Nebuchadnezzar has become a new God-centered man. Well, in the New Testament, what does the Apostle Paul say happens in 2 Corinthians 5.17? When a person is in Christ, therefore, if any man, if any woman, if any boy or girl, if any person be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he has become a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel that makes the heart to sing and the feet to dance, that we become new people in Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? What was the problem? Well, the people back there didn't have um, sunglasses, did they? And Moses' face was so bright they couldn't look at him because he'd beheld up on the mountain uh, during that 40-day period he'd seen the face of God. And that's a very good illustration of the glory of God. And I want to ask you today, do we radiate the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? The Apostle Paul indicates that genuine conversion is evidence when a person has become a new creation or a new creature in Jesus Christ. And it seems that this transformation had already occurred in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Question four, what New Testament ordinance or what New Testament ritual symbolizes this change in a person's life that occurs at conversion? We go to Romans 6 and verses 3 to 6. Paul says to the church in Rome, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there are two things. Baptism is linked with death. How does that work? It's explained in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So friends, when you're in the baptismal font, you take a last breath and then you go under the water and are symbolically buried to the old life of sin. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk also, we should walk in newness of life. So we're resurrected spiritually from the old life of death. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, the old man there is the old man of sin, the old body, the sinful nature, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And there's the victory that every person can have over sin. What New Testament ordinance or ritual symbolizes this change in a person's life that occurs at conversion? The answer is baptism. Friends, baptism symbolizes the change from the out-of-Christ relationship to the in-Christ relationship. 
It's a change from a life of dependence upon self, like Nebuchadnezzar, to a life of dependence upon Jesus Christ. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. If Nebuchadnezzar had lived in New Testament times, his next step would have been baptism. So I just want to illustrate to you how could this work in our lives? How can this change take place? I want to tell you a story. There was a certain wife who used to dread her husband coming home from work because he'd come home grumpy. He'd come home mean and sometimes he would yell and be violent. And so one day she heard him come home, bang on the front door. She went to open it. And he said, woman, I have had a bad day. And I'm warning you, the next time I come in this door and you notice my hat's on back to front, then I want you to get out of my way because I've had a bad day. Oh, she said, William, you have had a bad day. Come and sit down here. Let me get you a special drink. I'll turn on the news for you. I'll go and cook tea. And you just be calm and relax. You know, friends, all wise women know that once a man has had a feed, he's in a better frame of mind for negotiation. And so after Bill had had tea, she sidled up to him and she said, you know, honey, I have a pretty hard day at home with the kids. Sometimes a lot of things go wrong with running this house, with teaching and training the kids, and I have a hell of a day. And so I want to tell you that when you come in the door, and you've had a bad day, that if my apron is turned on the side, then I want you to step back because that means I've had a bad day and you need to beware. Ooh, he said, and that was it. Well, the next night, Bill had had a good day at work and everything was fine. But on the following night, his wife could hear him driving home. She could hear the screeching of his big truck. She heard him slam the door. She heard him bang on the front door. She went to open the door and there she saw him, hat back to front and mean face. And so he looked at her and he saw her apron on the side. And the two of them stood there in a Mexican standoff. And then they burst into laughter. Friends, often in times of conflict, we can revert to acting like little children. And often we mimic and we copy that which we've seen in our families of origin. But I want to tell you that if you spend time with Jesus in the morning, connecting with him by reading his word, and if you can't do that, ask him to make you, to help you, and praying to him and starting the day with Jesus. I want to tell you the good news tonight, the story of conversion is that big bad bill can become sweet William now. And that's my good news for you tonight, that the Holy Spirit working on a heart surrendered to Jesus, a heart that's reading his word and praying and pleading for the grace of God is an amazing transformation because Jesus can change the sinful human heart and bring conversion to anyone. Well, that takes us to our heading number two at the top of page three. And would you join me in question five? What three things does baptism symbolize in Romans 6, 3 to 6? Well, we just covered it. So it's talking there about being baptized into Jesus' death. And so death is the first answer. 
Then in verse 4, we find out that in baptism, we are buried to the old life. And so the second answer is burial. And then what are we raised to? That we should be raised from the dead in that verse by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And so there is the thought there that we shall be raised in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection. And so we've got our answer. What three things does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes a death to the old life, a burial of the old sinful nature, and a resurrection into a new converted life where we can become sweet and lovely people who reflect the love of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, so the Christian dies to self, buries the old way of life in the watery grave, and then rises to a new life in Jesus Christ. So what does the word baptize mean? I'm sure that many of you are saying it means to immerse, and that is actually the root meaning of the word. And so that's our answer, to immerse. Did you know that our English word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, meaning to immerse, to dip under, to submerge? Rather than translate the Greek word, we've made it sound like an English word. If the word were translated in English, baptism would be called immersion. I want to raise a question here. Um, friends, the Bible would believe that sprinkling is not immersion. Why is that? Because immerse means to actually go under the water. And I'm sure you've watched many surfers out there surfing, and then when they get knocked off, they certainly go under the water. Sometimes with the power of that wave, they're drilled down to the very bottom and uh, are drilled into the sand. And so immersion means to totally go under the water. And that's the only form of baptism that Scripture knows. Let's prove that. Let's search for that in question seven. Who went into the water when Philip baptized the eunuch? We're taken to Acts chapter 8, 36 to 38. I'm going to take it from 35 to 39 to give you more of the context. So Philip was an evangelist and he was caught up in the spirit and deposited here to interrupt the journey of an Ethiopian eunuch who happened to be the treasurer of Ethiopia. So a very high official of a foreign government. This official, the eunuch, we don't have his name, actually was studying the Isaiah scrolls. He'd read Isaiah 42 through to 49, 50, 52 and 53. And those passages are actually called the suffering servant songs. They represent a time of suffering for God's people Israel, but also typify the Messiah who would come and die for the sins of the world. So as this treasurer is continuing his Bible study, he gets to these passages about the Messiah and he doesn't understand them. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, of course, was God's evangelist. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. Friends, this is not just a puddle on the road. This is a body of water. Because the eunuch says, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Some people have tried to argue that this guy's just somehow fallen onto a Bible. He's read a few passages and he wants to be baptized. Friends, that's not accurate. 
this man had been under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was working on his heart, bringing him close to God. He's got a copy of the ancient biblical writings. He's read the messianic prophecies. And so Philip explains to him that this is referring to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And he has felt a conviction in his heart. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the Ethiopian said, I believe. What did he say? He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Friends, I want to tell you that statement is the foundation rock. God did not build his church on Peter, a rolling stone, Petros, but upon Petra, a rock, a firm foundation. What was the firm foundation? Jesus Christ builds the firm foundation of his church on this verse on all who would say that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the Ethiopian commands the chariot to stop still. And here's our answer. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Notice what did they do? They both went down into the water. We're trying to discover the biblical method of baptism. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, captures Philip and takes him away. I'd love to get some more details on that. We don't have more details on that, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask how the Holy Spirit can take someone from here to there. So that the eunuch saw Philip no more, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing because he'd been baptized and he accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So who went into the water when Philip baptized the eunuch? The answer was Philip and the eunuch, they went down into the water and he baptized him. When Philip baptized the eunuch, the Bible makes a point of the fact that both of them went into the water. The only reason both would need to go into the water would be if Philip baptized the eunuch by immersion. Question eight, why did the Baptist baptize at Anon? We go to John 3, 23. Now, John meaning the Baptist, also was baptizing in Anon, near to Salem, because there was much water there. And so people came and they were baptized. And so the answer is, this was a good place to baptize. And so the river must have been high enough there to be able to baptize someone by immersion. If John had baptized by sprinkling or pouring, he could have baptized at Jacob's well. It's a good point, isn't it? Instead, he chose this particular spot because there was a lot of water there. Well, what is the only method of baptism that properly symbolizes the correct meaning of baptism? We go to Romans 6, 3 to 6. We won't read those verses again. We've read them twice already, but it refers to going under the water. That's the death. There's the burial to the old life of sin and the resurrection to new life. And so, friends, the answer is immersion. Immersion is the answer that they go right under the water and are raised to newness of life. And so if baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection, then only immersion can properly symbolize those events. When a person is baptized by immersion, he closes his eyes for a brief moment. He stops breathing, an apt symbol of death. He's lowered into the water, into the watery grave, and that's a symbol of burial. Then he's lifted up and opens his eyes. He breathes again and he begins a new life. 
Sprinkling, pouring, or any other method of baptism other than immersion cannot symbolize the true meaning of baptism. You know, friends, if Nebuchadnezzar were living today, he would be baptized by immersion. Why? Because that's the Bible way. That takes us to the top of page four and heading number three. It leads to a very good question. You know, when should a person be baptized? At what stage? While baptism by immersion is clearly the biblical way of baptism, there is a question in many people's minds as to when a person should be baptized. Some people are baptized while they're still babies, while others wait until they're adults. What is the proper biblical time for baptism? Does the Bible recognize infant baptism? And that takes us to a heading, when should a person be baptized? In question 10, we're asked to list three requirements for baptism. So there are three things that we should do before we're baptized based on God's word. And here they are. We go to word, the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. The King James says teach. The New King James says make disciples. So we are to make disciples and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. There's our answer. Teaching them to observe how many things? All things that I have commanded you. Friends, that text reminds us that we should not just be baptized on a whim or in a fleeting moment. We need to know all the things that are in God's word enable in order to enable us to sign up completely with Jesus and to understand what we're undertaking because baptism is actually a marriage and a union to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to be taught to observe all things. Friends, this prophecy seminar in 32 lessons covers all the things necessary to be baptized. And so I just want to remind you that if you're doing this course, you are actually preparing for baptism, whether you know it or not, if that would be your choice at the end of time. List three requirements for baptism. Well, obviously, you understand the first one is to uh, be taught or to undergo teaching. But what's the second one in Acts 35 to 37? I think we already know the answer, don't we? It begins with B. What happened to the Ethiopian eunuch? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe. There's the formula. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The answer is to believe. Well, there's one more ingredient. We go to Acts 2, 37, 38, where Peter on the day of Pentecost was uh, talking to the Jews, he was pretty straight and he said to them, you have crucified Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, that got their attention. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It means they were convicted of their sin. They were under conviction. They felt guilty. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to the Jews, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the whole point of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is so all of us, like Big Bad Bill, can become sweet William now. So, friends, the three requirements for baptism are to be taught, to believe, and to repent. A good 
definition of repentance is being sorry enough to quit and asking God for power over that temptation. And God will give us overcoming power. How do I know that? If you go to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, there are seven promises to overcomers. What's that? Seven promise, seven promises to those who God says can overcome sin. So friends, three steps to baptism to be taught, to believe and to repent. The Bible is clear before a person's baptized, he must be taught, he must believe and he must repent. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? An infant is incapable of doing those three things. Therefore, infant baptism is not scriptural. Since baptism symbolizes the change from the outer Christ relationship to the in Christ relationship, Romans 6, 3 to 6, it would be impossible for a person to be baptized unless he had a conversion experience. So baptism is the Bible symbol that the conversion experience has happened. When a baby is baptized, there's no conversion. In fact, the baby doesn't even know what's going on. The Bible then gives no age for baptism. Instead, the Bible says that a person must be taught, must believe and must repent before baptism. Since it's impossible for a baby to do these things, infant baptism is unscriptural. I know that's hard to hear because it's been a tradition in many families and many churches, but the Bible does not recommend it. The Bible does not command it. And so baptism is an experience for believers who have been old enough to be taught to believe and repent. I just want to share with you that often I have tender-hearted children, anywhere from maybe eight to uh, 15 teenagers who've asked me to baptize them. And I always ask them if they're reading God's word, and often they are. And then I agree when talking with them and their parents to make sure that their parents are on board and it's a joint decision by the whole family to guard those young minds. Well, is there any record in the Bible of a baby being baptised? Well, you can type that into your online concordance or get out your strongs, but I think you'll know what the answer is in two letters, and that is, friends, there's no record. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, there's not a single instance of a baby ever being baptized. In fact, the first record of infant baptism comes from the second century, where there's only one case in that 100 years. The church in the early centuries would not allow a man to serve as a bishop in the church unless he had been baptized by immersion as an adult. Wow. They would not tolerate infant baptism because they knew it was not biblical. Would you mind if I just pause there? I want to direct your attention to the screen and just give you a little bit of history here. I want to look at the brief history of sprinkling. So friends, during the Middle Ages, you might be surprised to learn that individuals would put off conversion until their deathbed because they felt they shouldn't sin after they were baptized. Obviously, the Bible does not teach this. Thank God. When they felt they were dying, they would then call for the priest, come quickly, come quickly. The person is dying. So the individual would have to have a deathbed repentance with the desire to be baptized. Since he was too sick to be put under the water, he would then be put on a sheet and water would be poured over him. But of course, that made quite a mess. Then later, they just poured water over the candidate's head. 
but that also created a problem with water going everywhere. So finally, they came up with the third solution, which was just to sprinkle a little bit of water on the head. Thus, sprinkling came into the church through tradition, and it came into the church through compromise. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, they baptized by immersion as late as the 10th century. And then in medieval cathedrals throughout Europe, one can still see the baptismal fonts where people were baptized by immersion. I'm going to show those to you very soon. Back to the note under 11. Friends, did you know it was not until the uh, 1200s the church decreed that if babies were not baptized, they would never see the face of Jesus Christ? Likewise, baptism by immersion was the universal practice of the early church. Throughout the early centuries, the church practiced, practiced baptism by immersion, as one can see in the baptismal fonts, which still exist in many of the old cathedrals in Europe today. Let me take you on a little bit of a tour. You're in lockdown, so let me take you on a little bit of a tour, um, and please have a look at the screen. I want to share with you the history of baptistries. You know, when you go back to ancient churches, they reveal the method of baptism used. So let's go back to some of those early churches of the early centuries. Let's start in Greece, in the, uh, the little city of Philippi. You may remember that Paul established one of the earliest Christian churches there in the first century, in the little town of Philippi. These ruins do not date back to the first century, but they date back to early fourth and fifth century. Here in the ruins of one of the early Christian churches in Philippi, there's a baptistry where early Christians were baptized by immersion. Well, let's go on to Rome. This is the second most famous church in Rome. It's called St. John of Lateran, second only in fame to really St. Peter's Cathedral. Now, in the back of St. John's church, there is a baptistry there in Rome where adult believers were baptized by immersion. And yes, it is in that bath it looks a bit crowded now if we go on to the next famous architectural monument what is this yes if you're good readers you can say it's the leaning tower of pisa well friends this place is very famous in italy in fact the baptistry there is at the front then in the middle there's the cathedral or the piazza del duomo and then at the back the famous building the leaning tower of pisa it is not the Leaning Tower of Pizza. I've been there twice. There is no pizza shop in the building. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And here our Roman Catholic friends for 1300 years practiced baptism of adult believers in baptistries in their churches by immersion. If you're looking there and saying, where is it? There is a baptismal font. That is absolutely huge. I've been there. And I want to tell you that easily. 20, 30, 40 people could fit in there, probably with enough room to move around. We hurry on to the capital city of Turkey, which it was, Cappadocia, back in the Middle Ages. And this city was carved out in the mountains when the church and state united to persecute the Christians. They fled into these cities, and as they were hiding inside these cities, they carved out in the mountains. Inside these sandstone were chapels, and churches and hiding places. These Christians were being persecuted. So let's go into these hollowed out caves and see what you find. Here is a baptistry where Christians in the Middle Ages practiced baptism by immersion. 
Never, never, never by sprinkling, never by pouring, but always following very carefully the biblical method of baptism. We go on to another location in Moscow's Red Square. You have St. Basil's Cathedral. Maybe some of you hearing this at this time have been there. One of their early paintings is of the Prince of Russia, Vladimir the Great. He's actually in a baptistry scene and he is the Prince of Russia. Vladimir the Great in this baptistry scene and the date is 1088. And here you're looking at a Russian baptistry scene of their king being baptized by immersion. Baptism in the Bible is always after people believe in Christ, always after they repent of their sins, always after they accept the word of God. Baptism is never for babies throughout the Bible, always for adult believers, a symbol of commitment, faith, repentance of sin. Now, you may ask, well, when did baptism of babies come in and how did it happen? Well, that's a good question. Friends, it was not until the Council of Ravenna back in 1311 that sprinkling and pouring were officially accepted as equally valid as immersion in the rites of baptism. So it took 1300 years after Jesus Christ until the official church of the Middle Ages, which was the Church of Rome, for the first time to acknowledge that baptism was best done by sprinkling and pouring based on tradition and never based on God's word. We therefore must remember that up until that time, people were always immersed just like Jesus Christ was at his baptism. And so he, as our saviour, set a faultless example for all of us to follow. So friends, I hope it's clear that no babies were ever baptised in the Bible and that Jesus Christ loved to have the children. He said, let the little children suffer, the little children allow the little children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. Little children were never sprinkled. Uh, they were never baptized. So what do we do to recognize that our mother and father want to dedicate a child to God? We have a little dedication service in the church because that baby can't choose Jesus, but the parents, mum and dad, can decide to raise that child to know that there is a God in heaven, heavenly father who loves them and know that there is God's son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for them and that he comes to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is absolutely beautiful. And I have been able to officiate at many baby dedications where we dedicate beautiful children to Jesus. Question 12, we're asking when should a person be baptized? How many kinds of baptism does the Bible recognize? Because um, there are quite a few different styles practiced around the world today. We go to Ephesians 4 and verse 5. God's word is very clear about the number. Paul says there's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one true faith. It's based on all of God's word. And there's only one form of baptism. How many kinds of baptism does the Bible recognize? One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The Bible recognizes only one kind of baptism, and that is baptism by immersion, where people actually go fully under the water. There is no other proper method of biblical baptism. Well, heading number four says, is baptism a necessity? 
Is it really important? We go to question 13. What command did Jesus include in the Great Commission? We did already read this verse tonight. Let's go to it again. Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there's our answer. Notice it's not three names. It's one name, the family of God made up of one Father, one Son, and one Holy Spirit. Friends, the command to baptize is part of the Great Commission. The issue of baptism is not a side issue. Jesus considered it of such tremendous importance that he included it in this Great Commission to his church. And we must not take this command lightly. Jesus says that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He did not say that we are to be baptized in the names of the Trinity, but in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some have misinterpreted this text to mean that we should baptize in the name of the Father, then in the name of the Son, and then in the name of the Holy Spirit, and thus practice a triune or three-part baptism, or baptize them three times. Some places go three times backwards, and sometimes some places go baptizing people three times forward. Since baptism symbolizes our death to sin, burial to the old way of life, and our resurrection to a new life in Christ, it's only proper to be baptized one time. To be baptized three times would indicate we need to die, to be buried, and rise again three times in our relationship to sin. Likewise, it destroys the unity of the Godhead because it would indicate that the Christian believes in three gods instead of the one God manifested in three persons. Thus, the true Bible baptism that Jesus commanded in this great commission is the baptism of believers by immersion. So I want to ask you the question now, have you ever thought, why was Jesus Christ baptized? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that he was never a sinner. He was absolutely sinless, the scripture says. 1 Peter 2.22. So if he didn't sin, what was the point of him getting baptized? Well, we get the answer in Matthew 3.15, where Jesus said to John the Baptist, suffer it to be so, for it must be done to fulfill all righteousness. Friends, Jesus Christ was baptized as an example to you and I. Absolutely incredible, isn't it? For people like the thief on the cross, Jesus was also baptized. There are some people who won't have time to get baptized. Can you imagine the thief on the cross asking the Roman soldiers, um, sorry, guys, could I just bother you for a minute? Could I just get down? I've got to be baptized or I won't be saved. And then after the baptism, you can crucify me again. Friends, I do remember the story that during Desert Storm or Desert Shield quite a few number of years ago, when America invaded the country, of Iraq to look for weapons of mass destruction. The American soldiers were under huge pressure because they knew of the weapons of mass destruction, which they believed were there. And they were also very, very afraid of chemical warfare. And so many of those young men decided to ask their chaplains in their units to be baptized. And I just hope as we look at this photo that this young man did not lose his life in that war and that he's still alive and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? I believe that baptism is such a strong decision that that is quite a possibility. All right, would you join me in question 14? 
in his Pentecost sermon, how many people did Peter say should be baptized? Like, who's it for? Then Peter said to the Jews and the Gentiles, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission. Remission means the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and let every one of you be baptized. Friends, the message today is that no one was excluded. Today, no one is excluded. Everyone is invited to be baptized. Peter did, jo did just not invite people who wanted to be baptized. He commanded those who repented to be baptized, indicating the absolute necessity of baptism as a response to the conversion experience. You know, baptism by water is absolutely essential. However, baptism by water is meaningless unless it's accompanied by the inner baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an outward response to the inner change of life that takes place in the Christian. Baptism then can only mean something when there has been this inward change in a person's life. Friends, did you know the physical act of being baptised doesn't actually save us? It's not a sacrament. It is a Christian ritual, but it's not a sacrament that if you've been baptised, you're automatically saved. Baptism is the natural response of the Christian who has expect, accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour of his life. I once remember hearing a story of a lady who went to a preacher and said, Preacher, help me. I've got to be rebaptized. And he said, Madam, why do you need to be rebaptized? She said, Well, I'm doing a lot of sins. The first one didn't take. What? It didn't take. What is it? Dry cleaning? Friends, baptism is the outward decision the outward manifestation of an inward decision to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had a lot of people ask me to baptise them privately at home um, in backyard pools just so no one will know. I know that those people haven't read the Bible because baptism is always a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. It's a coming out ceremony for Jesus. It is to identify that you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, it's almost uh, a marriage. It's almost a wedding and a commitment to Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Saviour of your life. Well, how essential does Jesus consider baptism to be in Mark 16, 15 and 16? And Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died to save us. Would you preach it to every creature so it's for everyone? Then he said, he who believes and is baptised will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. Friends, some people have been uh, mistaken about this text. They've been very worried about this text. Um, what that's saying is the person who does not believe, who consistently rejects the work of the Holy Spirit, no, 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 and God knows they're not going to change their mind. That is the person who is condemned. That is the person who is not chosen to be saved. So I don't, don't want you to worry about people who are maybe putting it off. Their probation hasn't closed yet. And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. So how essential does Jesus consider baptism to be? He said, he who is, believes and is baptized might be saved, could be saved. Have a crack. No, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. It doesn't get to be better news than that.
Well, a good question is in 16, what are all believers baptized into in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? It says there, Paul says to the church in Corinth, for by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we're all baptized into what? One what? Body. I want you to burn that into your brain because people today are confused about that. We are baptized through the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit into a earthly body. doesn't matter whether we're Jews or we're not Jews. We're Greeks or Australians or Americans or any other nationality. Whether we're slaves or free and whether we have all been made to drink into one spirit. So, friends, we are all believers baptized into. The scripture is very, very clear. We're baptized by one spirit. We're all baptized into the one what? The one body. A person is not baptized into nothing. Paul makes it clear that Christians are baptized into the one body. Into what body are all Christians baptized? Now, this is a very important point. What is the body of Christ? Have a look. Here's the answer in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now, you are the what? Christians are called the body of who? They are the earthly body, the earthly representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christian believers and members of that body of Christ, they are members of his church individually. There's our answer. Into what body, what earthly body are all Christians baptized? Now, you are members of Christ. Sorry, you are the body of Christ and you are members individually in that body. Paul is here writing to the Corinthian church and he declares that the church is the body of Christ. What an exalted privilege that the church of Jesus Christ on earth is considered the body of Christ. Paul states that baptism is the Bible means of becoming a part of the body of Christ. Remember what Luke wrote to us in Acts 2.47? And the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. So friends of the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart tonight, that you would like to be baptized, you'd like to fully study God's word, be baptized and join his last day church, then I'm asking you to continue to pray about that and make a decision, the greatest decision of your life. Well, I want to tell you today that a lot of Christians are very confused. I've had people come to me and ask me to just baptize them into Jesus Christ. They don't want to be baptized into any church, any narrow uh, body of believers. Friends, I want to tell you that we are tested in that we must love the brethren. The scripture says we must love the brethren. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have something for another. What is it? If you have love for one another. Friends, we are baptized into the earthly body of Christ. It's a body of believers. It's the church. And so if you want to be just baptized into Christ, are you wanting to be baptized into the headless body? Friends, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of his earthly body. There's no such thing as a baptism into Christ without a baptism into his earthly body. We need the fellowship, the love, the support, the Bible study of other believers, the prayers of other believers. And that's why God plants us in his church. Well, whose name do people take when they're baptized? There's another hint. 
as to what we're baptized into. Galatians 3.27. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, for as many of you as were baptized into who? Christ have put on Jesus Christ. There's our answer. We are baptized into Christ and we put on that new create creature, that new creation is the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, when a person has put on Christ, he takes on himself the wonderful name of Jesus Christ and is then placed into a body of loving fellow Christians who will care for and nurture him. According to the Bible, it's impossible to be baptized and not become a part of God's loving family on earth, and that is the church. Well, is there any Bible example of rebaptism? There certainly is. We're going to Acts 19, 1 to 5. And it happened while Apollos, who's Apollos? Apollos was a New Testament evangelist, worked with Paul. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is across in uh, uh, what we was called Asia Minor in that time. It's Turkey today. I've been to the ancient ruins of Ephesus. It's very impressive. So Apollos comes to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, what? We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. No, they weren't. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So friends, is there any Bible example of rebaptism? Well, here in Acts 19, 1 to 5, there absolutely is. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that there are two instances that would warrant rebaptism. In Acts 19, 1 to 5 that we just read, it tells the story of some disciples who'd been baptized through the ministry of John the Baptist. They had not even heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul took them aside and taught them more fully all the word of God. When they learned these additional truths, it made such a significant change in their lives that they were rebaptized into the Holy Spirit. From this example, it would seem that rebaptism would be proper when a person learns significant new truth that makes a major change in his life. Then there's a second example. Likewise, baptism is the marriage ceremony that unites a believer to Jesus Christ. And so if an individual who's been baptized slips away from the Lord, goes back out into the world and virtually divorces Jesus, then when the person returns to the Lord, it would be proper to symbolize reconversion by rebaptism. Question 20, the Apostle Paul was tempted to put off his baptism. When he was delaying, what did God's chosen messenger Ananias say to Paul in Acts twenty-two sixteen? And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Friends, I want to tell you a story about a man named Lawrence. This man named Lawrence was impressed to go along to a set of evangelistic meetings. And he heard the good news that Jesus died for his sins. He started Bible studies with the local pastor. And he was being prepared for baptism. 
On the morning of his baptism, the pastor was ready, the church was ready. The baptismal font was full of water for his baptism by immersion, and everyone was waiting. But Laurie never turned up. He was wrestling with the fact of his commitment to sport and how that conflicted with his day of worship that he found in the Bible. And so, friends, three weeks later, Laurie was hit by a car and he was in a car accident while crossing the road. His local pastor came to pray with him and encouraged him and said in the prayer, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sparing Lawrence's life for he could have been killed the other week. And so thank you for healing him. Thank you for sparing his life. And may one day soon he realise that to follow Jesus Christ is the greatest thing, the greatest decision in all of our lives. And I'm praying that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you that uh, as the pastor left, Laurie spent a number of weeks thinking about that great decision. And he decided that the Lord Jesus Christ had spared his life. He should have been killed when crossing the road by that car. And so he went to the church and he was baptised. And so that's the story of Lawrence. And Lawrence is my father-in-law. That's how I know that story. And so Lawrence's decision to be baptised meant that one day I was able to meet his daughter and marry into a Christian family. And I want to tell you that great decisions for baptism are always awesome. And you never know where they will lead and whose lives they will bless for God. When you choose to be baptized, it's a powerful moment. I was baptized on uh, December 14, 1974. And it was a fantastic day. I still remember it. And I remember that it had a powerful effect on those who were watching because my father, who was a minister, called them to also step forward and follow the masterful one, the beautiful Jesus. And that's what I'm encouraging you to consider and do tonight to make that decision. Well, the Apostle Paul was tempted to put off his baptism, much like the story of Laurie. When Paul was delaying, what did God's chosen messenger Ananias say to Paul in Acts 22.16? He said, Paul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. That's the greatest decision, I believe, that you can ever make. Because Paul had been such a persecutor of the church, he probably felt he needed to prove himself first to earn God's favor. But God sent an angel to Ananias with a special message for the apostle Paul that Paul should not put off his decision. Paul had been converted. He fully accepted Christ as his saviour and had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he was ready to be baptised. Nothing should delay that decision. Question 21. If Nebuchadnezzar had lived in New Testament times, he would have asked for baptism immediately upon his conversion. Since you live in New Testament times, is it your desire to be baptised after the example of your Lord as a simple and testimony to the world that you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour of your life. I'm hoping tonight that you have decided for baptism or rebaptism. And I want to tell you tonight that Jesus calls us today, tonight, or wherever we are, whatever we're doing, 
to make a solid commitment to him as our Lord and Saviour. I have a little story to finish off. We're uh, going well for time tonight. Would you just stay with me for a moment? I want to tell you this amazing story about the son. A wealthy man and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from Picasso to Raphael. You know, they would sit as father and son together and admire the great works of art and discuss it. But when the Vietnam War broke out, the son chose to go to war and defend his country. He was very courageous and died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, just after Christmas, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and as he was carrying me to safety, a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. Sir, he often talked about you and your love for art. The young man then held out his package. I'm sorry, this isn't much, but I've done the best I can, and I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package and found it was a portrait of his son, painted by the young man and painted with love. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was drawn to the eyes of his son and soon his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. Oh no, sir, he said, I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a free gift. The father hung a portrait over the mantle in his mansion. Every time visitors came to his home, he took them to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great works he collected. The man died a few months later, that is the father. There was to be a great auction of his paintings. Many influential people gathered excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their collection. On the platform now sat the painting of the son. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. We'll start the bidding with this picture of the son. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence. Then a voice at the back of the room shouted, Hey, we want to see the famous paintings. Skip that one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? Do I have 100? Do I hear $200? Another voice shouted out angrily. We didn't come to see this painting. We've come to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still the auctioneer continued. The sun, it's about the sun. Who'll take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the man and his son. Uh, I'll, I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, it was all he could afford. We have $10. Who will bid 20? Uh, give it to him for 10 bucks, someone said in the front row. Let's see the masters. $10 is the bid, continued the auctioneer. Won't someone give me 20? The crowd was becoming impatient. Some were getting angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer now pounded the gavel, going once, going twice, sold for $10. A man sitting on the second row shouted, now, Get on with the collection. At that point, the auctioneer did something very strange. 
He laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, he said. The auction is over. But what about the paintings, the people said. I'm sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal the stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Those are my instructions. Whoever bought the painting would inherit the entire estate. It includes all the paintings, all the works of art. And so what you've seen today is this. The man who took the sun. The man who took the painting of the sun gets everything. Friends, I think it's an amazing story because 2,000 years ago, God gave his son to die on that cruel cross. And much like the auctioneer, his message today is very simple. The son, the son, who will take the son? Because you see, whoever takes the son gets everything. And so I'm hoping tonight that you are wise enough to take the son. And I'm hoping that some of you will choose to be baptized. And maybe even some of you will choose to be rebaptized. May God bless you as you make a decision for him. This decision is not just a decision for this life, but this decision is the greatest decision you could ever make for this life and the life to come. Tonight's lesson, we discovered what's biblical baptism. It's always baptism by immersion. There's only one way. Number two, why don't we baptize infants? Babies and little children cannot be taught, they cannot believe, and they cannot repent. Number three, is it necessary to be baptized to be saved? Yes, we all need to be baptized in order to be saved. However, the thief on the cross was probably covered by Jesus Christ's baptism. And the same for all those who don't have time to be baptized in the instant they choose to serve and follow Jesus Christ before their death, which gives us all hope. Number four, what are new Christians to be baptized into? There's only one body. We're baptized into the body of Christ. His earthly body is his church. Thank you for those who are doing the quiz. We have about three people who are all on the top score. Let's go through the response questions. Is it your desire to be baptized in the near future and follow the example of Jesus Christ? If so, tick box number one. Number two, if it's your desire to serve God, not out of fear, but because you love him for what he did on the cross for you, can you tick box number two? Number three, if you've already been baptized by immersion, is it your desire to reconfirm your baptismal decision? Then I'm asking you to tick box number three. And uh, I'd like you also to, uh, to consider contacting me, and I'd love to tell you the next steps that you can take. Well, our quiz tonight is something different. We actually have to fill in the missing word. So kids, I hope you're ready with your pens and your envelopes. Let's go to question one. The missing word is the symbol of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The missing word starts with B, and we've been talking about it all night. Do you know the answer? I'm sure you dear. Do. What is the symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? These answers are all one-word answers. Number two, what is the first requirement for baptism? What is it to be? And it starts with the letter T. We have to be something starting with T. We have to be what? 
Number two, what's the second requirement for baptism? It is to something begins with B. We have to something in Jesus Christ that begins with B. The third requirement for baptism is to do something that begins with R. We have to do something to get rid of our sins. Question four. Sorry, we've done question four. Question five. When people are baptised, they become a part of the something that begins with B. The something which is and represents the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. So I'm sure you know the answer to that. All right, let's go through our one word answers tonight. Question one, what's the symbol of death, burial and resurrection of Jesus? The answer would be baptism. The first requirement for baptism starting with T would be that we are to be taught God's word, that we are to receive teaching. The second requirement for baptism is to believe. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. The third requirement is to repent from our sins. And the fifth question says we need to join the earthly body of Christ. We cannot join and become members of the headless body. It doesn't make any sense. We need other people to help us on our journey to heaven. Well, tonight we started in Daniel 4. We've learned that Nebuchadnezzar, if he was around today, would have been baptized by immersion. And that's what we learned in our prophecy seminar tonight. Now, friends, I have a warning. Next week's lesson is not one you can pretty much cruise through. I'm going to ask you in prophecy seminar lesson one to make sure you spend some time on this. I'd say Daniel chapter 11 is probably the hardest chapter of all the books of Daniel. Next week, we're going to discover why aren't some prayers always answered immediately. We're going to look at spiritual warfare. Number two, what order do the panorama of nations follow in Daniel 11? I'm asking you to read Daniel 11 through first. You may need a commentary. You may need some help to understand it. The lesson will help you, but you do need to read it before you actually do the lesson. Finally, and when does deliverance finally come to God's people? Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the Bible's simple message that we need to be baptised. Father, it's a wonderful thing to stand in the water, to have been taught to believe in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, and then to go fully under the water. And that symbolises the washing away of our past life, the washing away of all of our sin, mistakes, regrets, and our guilt. That can all be washed away in this beautiful memorial service. Reminds us of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I pray that the people who are listening to this, wherever they are, whatever time frame this is, that if the Holy Spirit says to them, start reading God's word, be taught and uh, accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour and repent, that they will start preparing for baptism. And I pray that no one will delay their baptism. Let us learn from the stories of others that this is something we should never put off, for we never know if we have the chance to choose Jesus, to, to choose Jesus tomorrow. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA.
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.